Commander! We're pinned down by enemy forces! They're flanking us on every side! We need reinforcements, stat! They need to be willing to do anything for our Lord! They need to be willing to be... Radical Christians! The rebellious sons of God crash-landed on Earth and caused irreparable damage to the human race. So it was up to Jesus and his secret mission to undo the damage of the Watchers. Also the Book of Enoch. Alright, Radical Christians. Today we have a massive episode, 16 pages of notes, all to give you a crash course in the Watchers. This is my Watchers Chronicles series. Part one of a couple parts, I don't know how many yet, but we need to see Jesus' secret mission throughout the Bible and these rebellious sons. In Genesis, we see that divine sons of God came down to earth and mated with human females to create giants. If you believe that, congratulations, you're at step one. These four verses echo throughout the rest of the Bible and have intense ramifications. Today, we're going to be using the work of Michael Heiser, as usual, and the book Reversing Herman. So, if you do not have Reversing Herman, pick it up. If you do, this is section one of the book we're going to go over. Also, we are looking at some of the Great Inception in regards to the Mount Herman information, and also Last Clash of the Titans for a little Who's That Dude segment that you don't want to miss. For today's episode, I'll give you the quick rundown of what we'll be getting into just so you, you know what's in store. We're going to do our intro to Enoch. We're going to talk big time about the book of Enoch. We're going to we're going to give you a summary of the whole book. Now, we're going to after that we're going to get into the Sethite view debunked. How some people think that the sons of God were men? Wrong. Then we're going to get into what Peter and Jude thought about Enoch. We're going to get into Nephilim. We're going to get into can angels take human form and have sex with humans? And we're going to get into Nephilim after the flood. Then our next section will be the complete overview of the book of Enoch. We're going to get into some special facts about Mount Hermon. We're going to go over the Watcher account. And then for our third section and final section of this episode, we are going to talk about the mysterious Apkalu. These Mesopotamian sages who, guess what? They're the Watchers. This is new information found out in 2010 that links the Apkalu to the Watchers. Then we're going to go over the divine knowledge they brought, the judgment they got for being evil spirits, and we're out. So hopefully... Actually, no. This episode will be great, and the series will be great. So let's go ahead and do this. All right, so first we need to talk about the book of Enoch. It is an intertestamental book, which means it was written after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. It is a pseudepigraphical book, which means it was written and ascribed to Enoch, although he did not write it. So it doesn't mean that the writing was fake. It means that at that time, a lot of people would say this book was written by this person when really they wrote it, but it, ha- it does nothing to take away from the credibility of the book. Now, the book of Enoch itself is a full expansion on Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So those, those handful of verses in Genesis 6 talk about the sons of God coming down and, and creating giants with human females. This is a zoom in on that. This is like a separate movie for that one part of a different movie. This book of Enoch had a profound impact on the thinking of the New Testament writers. Now, the oldest fragments of Enoch were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were found when a small boy looking for his goat threw a rock, heard some pottery break, went in to check, and he found just, boom, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Copies of every book of the Bible except for Esther. And just multiple copies, he found the Book of Giants, the Book of Enoch, all kinds of stuff. And the Book of Giants, separate episode we're going to get into. So I'm excited, and you should be excited too. 
What is a watcher? The Aramaic I-R-I-N, Iron, appears only in the book of Daniel. Uh, the book, So the book of Daniel mentions watchers in Daniel 4.13, 4.17, and 4.23. So they're also called the Holy Ones. So our last episode of the Divine Council, these are the same beings. These watchers are the same beings of the Divine Council. Now when they're in the Divine Council, they were good. Now, as soon as they get kicked out of there, they're not good anymore. Now, what these beings did when they came down on Mount Hermon, made a pact to take wives and father children, what they did, like I said, echoes throughout the Bible. And a lot of what Jesus did on this earth was to specifically combat that stuff that was done, to specifically reverse, hence the name reversing Hermon, to reverse the damage that was done. Last time I talked about what I call the big three, where if you ask somebody nowadays what caused all, what caused all the, the, the evil in the world, they would say the fall. Now, back in the ancient times, they would say the fall, Genesis 6, and the Tower of Babel event. Now, we're getting into, boom, number two. We got into the first episode we did, the Nakash was number one. The second episode was number three. Now, we're getting into number two. The interesting thing that we get into in section three of this is that the Mesopotamian account, their, basic, their, their version of the story features these mysterious beings called the Apkalu. They're shown with wings and eagle heads. Sometimes they're shown with fish capes on, or if it's, I don't know if it's a fish head or a fish cape. It looks like a cape. The context of their story, you see that same context in the Enoch account. So it shows that the people who wrote Enoch were aware of the Mesopotamian story, and it was a tit-for-tat uh, polemic, a counterpoint. Like, oh, the Mesopotamians told this story? Well, here's the truth, and they gave Enoch. Now, in our Bibles, we only have those four verses that directly deal with this. But again, the book of Enoch, references to it, and scriptures from it are scattered throughout the Bible, Peter and Jude, mostly. It also refers to, in the Bible, they also refer to it as, it is written in scripture, or scripture says, when they're talking about Enoch. The first thing we need to do with Enoch is let you know that it is not inspired. Now, it is not the inspired word of God. It's not the canonical Bible. What does that mean? That does not take away from its credit. Now, there's some books that you read, extra biblical books that you'll read, that you cannot trust. Like, they're, they're just weird. They're myst- mysticism. They're, they're something. They're untrustworthy. However, there are other books. They're just not inspired by God. The inspired word of God doesn't make them any less true. Think of books you read today that are not the inspired word of God, but they are books that are true. Like if you got, if you read an instruction manual on something that taught you how to operate a, a vehicle or whatever the case may be, that doesn't mean that, that just because that vehicle manual is not inspired, that it's not true. Now, we keep that in mind when we're looking at Enoch. And because so many people in the Bible call back to it, it kind of shows that it builds a little bit more of a case for us to look at it. Now, what's really interesting is in the book of Enoch, right away, it gives a prophecy or it basically says that this book is meant for the last generation, the last days. And, and the book of Enoch references Jesus more than a bunch of other books of the Bible. So it's referenced in the Bible. But just just keep in mind also, many other texts are referenced in the Bible. You have the Baal cycle referenced um, in Psalms. Solomon borrowed wisdom from Amenemope in Proverbs. And in the New Testament, Paul quoted from several Greek poets. That alone is not the only reason why we should look at it, but that kind of shows you there's other stuff in the Bible that, that's referenced, but this one, I believe, is fat, more factual than the other. So let's get into the original context of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We're going to talk about giants, and we're going to get into the Sethite view. So first of all, like I said, Enoch is an expansion of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So several of the elements added to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in Enoch are not found anywhere in the Old Testament, but they are found in the New Testament and the Mesopotamian material. 
So the writer of First Enoch knew and preserved the original context and information of the Mesopotamian text and put it into Enoch. So they're linking Genesis 6, 1 through 4, First Enoch, and the Mesopotamian Apkalu story. Now, the Watcher story in the Bible is one of the most important stories because it frames the context from the, a lot of other things throughout the Bible of, of what Jesus did on the earth and why. So let's get into Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right. Our first fun side note, when it says his day shall be 120 years, that does not mean that man's lifespan is limited to 120 years because after that Noah lived way longer, hundreds of years, and Methuselah, I believe was born after that, um, lived a lot longer than that too. What it meant was 120 years from when this was written, or from, not from when this was written, from when this took place, the flood came. Now we have the Sethite view, take these off. Now, the Sethite view is the, basically the predominant view on Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They think that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth, human beings, and the daughters of men were the, the daughters of Cain. So they believe good people, good humans, and bad humans mated and made giants. Now, that robs the text of its supernatural context and just of its face value reading. So you have to do like mental gymnastics just to avoid the elephant in the room that, hey, these are divine beings. So this started in the late fourth century and it's the predominant viewpoint today. Now the people who were around this time of Genesis 6, they did not believe this view. The, the, the Jews at Jesus' time, they did not believe the Sethite view. This is a fairly new thing. Now one of their points would be that, oh, intermarrying between the good and the bad is forbidden. But again, this is before Jews and Gentiles, so there is no ban on don't marry this person, don't marry that person. They also say that Genesis 4.26 says that it's either Seth or humankind began to call on the name of the Lord. So that means only Seth, only people from Seth's family began to call on the name of the Lord. That's simply not what the text says. Now second, this, again, this doesn't explain how it gave, they gave birth to literal giants. The text itself says daughters of men, not daughters of Cain. So now you're putting something into the Bible, which is a big no-no. So another point is the text says sons of God, Beneha Elohim. We learned in our last video about the divine council that that is only used when talking about divine beings, not godly men. Some also suggest that these sons of God were divinized human rulers. But again, it doesn't say that. That's adding it in. So to sum up, the Sethite view to debunk it right here for you. Number one, how likely is it, and this is from the Great Inception, how likely is it that all Sethite men were good and all Canaanite women were bad? Number two, so does that mean that Canaanite men never married Sethite women? And if they did, that didn't create giants, just the, uh, just the, the one combination did? Number three, why would they produce giants? Why would two groups of humans produce giants? And number four, why would this lead to a flood? And one more bonus one, Number five, every other use of B'nai Elohim refers to divine beings. So I have a little story about this and it still, it doesn't really frustrate me to this day, but I, it just, it kind of bothers me. 
I was going to a church. I was getting plugged in again, and we were going through Genesis. And I, I knew it was coming up, and I knew all my research and all the things I knew about Genesis 6. I went to church, and I was like, I'm going to ask the pastor what his views are, just so I don't get blindsided while I'm in church if he has a different view than me, and I get distracted, and I don't really get to soak it in. So, um, and then I thought to myself, you know, this isn't really something to leave a church over just yet. You know, if he thinks that it's the line of Seth and I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a full reason to leave for me at that time. But I went and talked to him and he, he basically said, no, no, that's the son of the sons of Seth. So then I began to give, give him these answers and he just gave me like, he just gave me these stock, like really weak responses. And I remember, I remember thinking like, you're the one teaching people you should be researching this stuff. This doesn't take hard research. This is this is very face value stuff. And he, he he just disagreed with me. And he wouldn't he, he wouldn't hear me hear like the reason of what I was saying. And I was like, you know what? Okay, he he believes that. I believe this. That's fine. So then the next I think it was a Wednesday. I came to church. He covered Genesis. He proceeded to make jokes about it and call it literal tall tales. He called the giant story tall tales. And he kind of made jokes like that. It, it's ridiculous to think it was giants. And needless to say, I stopped going to that church. But that just shows you, you have to be accountable for the stuff that you learn and you absorb. So let's move on to what Peter and Jude understood about Enoch. And keep in mind, they both embrace the supernatural view of Gen 6. So we have 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. It says, But there are also false prophets among people, and in greediness they will exploit you with false words whose condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but held them captive in Tartarus with chains of darkness, and handed them over to be kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the proclaimer of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes, having appointed them as an example for those who are going to be ungodly and rescued righteous lot, worn down by the way of life and lawless persons in licentiousness. For that righteous man, as he lived among them day after day, was tormenting his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he was seeing and hearing. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to reserve the unrighteous to be punished in the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh in defiling lust who despise authority." right here we'll get into our first part you look at verse 4 for God did not spare the angels who sinned but held them captive in Tartarus now Tartarus is a separate place than Hades you had Hades you had Tartarus now this isn't just mentioned because oh he was talking to a bunch of Greeks so he threw in a shout out to them this is mentioned once in the Bible right here it's very specific he knew the word for Hades he, he chose his words carefully. Now, to me, this shows that Tartarus is a actual, legitimate place. And it says they're bound with chains of darkness, and they're kept for the day of judgment. It says he did not spare the ancient world. Now, the antediluvian, the pre-flood world, that's the ancient world. Now, if you notice at the very end, at verse 10, it says, Especially those who go after the flesh in defiling lust who despise authority. Now, that could be sexual sin of, of humans, but if you look at the context talking about angels, he's saying, hey, he didn't spare these angels, so why would he spare you? Look what the angels did. They went after the flesh, human flesh, and they despised authority. They made an oath to break away from God and do this. And we'll get more into that later. Now we can go to Jude 5-7. through 7. 
Now I want to remind you, although you know everything once and for all, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the second time destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire." Right here, you see the supernatural context. You see it talking about the watchers. It says, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom, darkness, for the judgment of the great day. So, and it also calls back to sexual immorality. Scholars agree that both passages are about the same thing, which is the time of Noah when the angels sinned and called about the flood. Now, just like the sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah called judgment, their sexual sin called judgment. And that's why it compares the two in both verses. Now, now we're going to move on to our favorite, the staple of every Christian YouTube and book nowadays, which is good, the Nephilim. The Nephilim. So, Jewish thinkers at the time understood the Mesopotamian context of the Apkalu story regarding the Nephilim, which has them as giant offspring of the divine sons of God. So, most people think that Nephilim means fallen ones, or those who fall upon, which is a term used in battle. Now, this is because the, the Hebrew verb is NPL, which is nephal, which means to fall. Right there, that removes, unknowingly removes, the, the demigod nature of the Nephilim. Now, Greeks, a demigod is a god and a human. That's a demigod. So, Hercules, by definition, would be a demigod, which by definition would be a Nephilim. Gilgamesh, we'll get into him later, Nephilim. Anything that is a hybrid of angelic and human is a demigod, and I'll refer to them as such. So, when you look at it as the fallen, and you rob it of its supernatural context, you have, you have no way to explain Numbers 13.33, Deuteronomy 2.20-21, and Deuteronomy 3.1-11, which talks about the Anakim and the Rephaim, who descended from the Nephilim, and they're described as being incredibly tall. So there's no way to explain that. Without getting into a ton of the, the semantics about it, basically, Jews were exiled in Babylon. They learned Aramaic. There's an Aramaic version of the word Nephilim spelled with a Y, and it means giant. And that's where we believe we get the word Nephilim from. So it doesn't mean fallen ones, which would be their fathers. It doesn't mean fallen ones. It means giant. All the people, uh, the Jews, ancient Jews, everybody knew that these were giants. They, did, they knew exactly what they were. So next topic. Can angels have sex or take human form? The answers are yes. Now, the verse that everyone brings up, Matthew 22, 23 through 33, it says, The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died, and in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, saying, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is, the God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So right here, easy to debunk. It says that the angels don't have sex, not that they can't, they don't have sex in heaven. So on earth, they're not in heaven, 
And if they don't have sex in heaven, it doesn't rule out that they could do it on earth. You also see in Genesis 18 and 19, Yahweh and two other divine beings ate with Abraham. So these were angels. And those same beings grabbed Lot and pulled him back into his house in Sodom when they were going to attack him. So they physically grabbed him. They weren't spirits. They, had, they took human form. They grabbed him. Another interesting part we're going to get into is the Nephilim after the flood. So you have Genesis 6-4 saying that there were giants on the earth before the flood and also afterward. Numbers 13.33 says the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. So this was way after the flood. It says that they came from the Nephilim. So there are two main schools of thought on how the giants returned after the flood. There's one that's going to sound crazy to you. And then there's another one that's not going to sound so crazy. So keep in mind, these are the schools of thoughts. I'm not saying I, I believe these specific ones. I'm saying these are the main ones. So you have a localized flood event. So basically the biblical text suggests that this was a worldwide flood. Some make the case that it could be a localized flood and it wasn't completely global. Now that's one of the cases. And I'm not saying I believe that one. And then you have two, which is basically a repeat offense. So the phrase, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, the word when could be translated as whenever. So that's an easy fix right there. We are going to get into Enoch and the Watchers. Now this is a rapid fire episode, so try to keep up. So our overview of the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is amazing. Go read it. It's great. It's basically in eight parts. You have part one, chapters one through 36, which is the book of the watchers, which is what we're talking about. Then you have part two, the book of the parables, also called the similitudes, chapters 37 through 71. Part three, the book of the luminaries, which I think is planets, stars, that kind of thing, lights in the sky, which is also called the astronomical book. That's chapters 72 through 82. Part four, you have the book of dreams, which is chapters 83 through 90. Part five, you have the Apocalypse of Weeks, which is like the weeks in Daniel. You have chapters 91, 11 through 17. That's the Apocalypse of Weeks. Then part six, you have the Epistle of Enoch, which is chapter 91, 1 through 10, and 92 through chapter 105. Next, you have part seven, the birth of Noah, chapters 106 to 107. And lastly, you have an extra chapter of Enoch. So the first five chapters are an intro to the Watcher section. And chapters 6 through 16 tell the story of the Watchers. Now, in the Watcher story, there's basically two stories weaving together. You have the story of Azael, or Azazel in the Ethiopic text, whose primary sin was improper revelation, so giving improper knowledge, secret knowledge of heaven. And the other leader, Shemhiyaza, remember that name, Shemhiyaza, and his primary sin was the, the marriage with the humans and procreation of giants aspect. So, again, the Watchers begat giants on earth by their union with human women, and out of these giants came the evil spirits that led humanity astray. So, this is the origin of demons. We got into that last time. Now, this is also mentioned in the Book of Jubilees, and the crisis of the Watchers was resolved when God made the giants fight each other. He made the Watchers watch. He, wa he made them watch their sons get destroyed for what they did. That's part of their punishment. And he sent his warrior angels to go cause earthquakes, eat up the giants, cause infighting, chain up the angels, and then boom, the flood hit. Now in the book of giants, you get an account that shows it from a giant's perspective. He, they keep having dreams about an oncoming flood and they see a tablet and on the tablet are a bunch of names and, the, and then water washes over it and only like two or three names are left. But again, another episode for the book of giants. That'll be a fun one. 
Chapters 12 through 14, you have Enoch entering as a scribe. And Enoch is a very interesting character. He's one of my favorite people in the Bible. I think Joshua, well, Jesus, Joshua, and Enoch, probably my, my, my top three right now, could change tomorrow, except for the Jesus part. So Enoch is basically a parallel of the Watchers because the Watchers are divine beings that came to earth. And you know Enoch, he was called into heaven. He didn't experience death. He was called into heaven. So Enoch is basically the reverse, a human ascending to the divine instead of a divine descending to the humans. That's very interesting. Now, the Watchers basically went to Enoch and they said, hey, we really messed up. We need you to go intercede for us and talk to God because we know you're in good with God. Go talk to God. Let him know that, that we wish we didn't do this. We need to figure out something to undo this, basically. Enoch went to God on a cloud into the throne room of God, and God basically tells him, no, I made angels to intercede for humans, and they're going to send you up here. They, they took the secrets of heaven and gave them humankind, and the secrets they gave were tiny ones at that. They weren't even good ones, according to God. I mean, they brought some pretty hefty things, but imagine what secrets are up there if, if the garbage ones were weapons of warfare, astrology, all this crazy stuff. Now, in chapters 17 through 36, Enoch has a cosmic tour of heaven given by angels. He sees the places where the spirits of the dead are kept uh, inside of a mountain with three compartments. He sees Gehenna. He sees the Garden of Eden. He sees the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. And, and while he's seeing this, they talk about the sin of Adam. And, and it basically considers it a lesser sin compared to the sin of the Watchers, which is really interesting. So chapters 37 through 71, you have the book of parables or the similitudes of Enoch. Now, this is the only section where there is no matching fragment found in the caves of Qumran when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the theme is the coming judgment of the righteous. It's basically end times themed. And they call, they call Jesus the chosen one which is also brings up an interesting psyop of how in movies like Harry Potter and other stuff, they're called the chosen one. Well, the book of Enoch talks about the original chosen one, and that was Jesus. So they're, they're, they're biting his style. So chapters 72 through 82 is the astronomical book. It's the oldest portion. It gives theological interpretations to astronomical observations. Chapters 83 through 90, the book of dreams. It mirrors certain passages of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Then you have, in that same book, it, it talks about two apocalypses, and it's basically a vision of cosmic destruction, and it talks about an animal apocalypse, which is basically a super complex allegory, which compares Adam to a white bull, Cain and Abel are black and red bullocks, Israel is sheep, and the sheep are, in, in the time of exile, the sheep are given over to 70 shepherds, which would be the sons of God, and the reign of these shepherds is divided into four periods, a period of 12, 23, 23, and 12 again. And at the end of the third period, the small lambs were born from the white sheep, and they began to open their eyes. And this is taken to refer to the Hasidim who supported Judas, who supported Judas Maccabus. Now this, they say, was written at the time of the Maccabean revolt by the people who supported the Maccabees. So we skip ahead to chapter the, to the Apocalypse of Weeks, and it's very similar to Daniel 9. It records what Enoch saw in heavenly vision, and he understood from the tablets of heaven. It explains how future history will be divided into 10 weeks, and the weeks speak of the end times and the judgment of the watchers. Chapters 91, 1 through 10, and 92 through 95 speak against the sinners and exhort the righteous. And then the birth of Noah account, chapters 106 and 107, speak about how Noah's miraculous birth foreshadowed his role as the preserver of the human race, and it also promises salvation for those who survived the great judgment during the deluge. And then the last chapter is basically an appendix-type conclusion to the whole thing. The setting of the Watcher's arrival. 
This is Mount Hermon. This information is from the Great Inception. Mount Hermon was the highest peak in the Levant at 9,200 feet above sea level, and it's on the border between Israel and Syria. It's been considered sacred for most of human history. And old Babylonian versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh, they called it Hermon and Lebanon, the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. Now those people are real big in ancient aliens, and this is where it talks about them. So the Ninevite version of the story uh, describes Gilgamesh as the guardian of the abode of the gods, which would be the same place, Mount Hermon, and the Anunnaki were the seven chief gods of the Sumerian pantheon. So Anu, the sky god, Enlil, the god of air, Enki, the god of earth, Ningershag, the mother goddess of the mountains, Inanna, the Babylonian Ishtar, which is also Venus and Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and war, and Sin, the moon god, which they compared to the Islamic god, Allah, and Utu, the sun god. So those were the seven Anunnaki. Now, Hermon appears to be based on the root word meaning taboo. So the, the sin that was so great that started on this mountain was the crossing of the species barrier. So human and divine and also angelic, divine and animal, which the Book of Giants talks about what they did with animals. And it gets really intense because a lot of the creatures of mythology can be explained if an angel mated with a beast. And the Book of Giants refers to them as monsters. Now, that's a whole other thing. This doesn't mean that all mythology is, is true, like we said before, but this means that this would explain a animal-human hybrid, such as a minotaur or something. It's not too far of a stretch. If, if you're believing the biblical text, which says that Jesus came in a, of a virgin birth, that there's divine beings in a spiritual realm, it's not a stretch to believe that the same divine beings that made it with humans, made it with animals, created a different kind of creation. So, you know, pray it over. Now, again, Tartarus was where the, the beings who sinned on this mountain were cast down. And you basically have the main guy, Shemiyaza, saying like, Hey, I, I want us to make an oath because I feel like one of us will, will dip out of this bargain. We make an oath that we're going to follow through with this plan and go take wives. So they made an oath on that mountain. And there's actually a stella, a, a, a giant thing that Derek Gilbert talks about, which is found, which talks about like makers of the or keepers of the oath meet here. Something, something interesting like that. Now, Tartarus was a separate place from Hades. It was, it was a place of torture and torment even lower than Hades in Greece. So you had Hades, you had Tartarus, and it was as low as, it was as far below Hades as the earth was below heaven. So this was reserved for the angels that engage in this illicit sexual relation with human females. So they, they were doing this to not only pollute the human genome and break the messianic bloodline, but also something to create an army. In the book of Jasher 418, you, you also see the mixture of one species with another. Now, not only was Mount Hermon the secret dwelling place of the Anunnaki, but it was also the meeting place for the Semitic god El, which was the, the main god of their pantheon. And Mount, Mount Hermon was where El and his consort Asherah and his 70 sons, what a coincidence, just like God's 70 sons, where they held counsel. El came to, came to be the generic term used for God, which is El, Elion, Elohim. And basically, the Canaanite god took the name El, which is another kind of jab at our god trying to trying to take his identity trying to take some of his 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 shine off of him so basically herman was el's false mount of assembly so you have eden the garden on a mountain which was god's mount of assembly and then you have mount herman the counterfeit dark eden or shadow eden so now we're going to go ahead and get into the watcher account what we all came here for now this is important to lay out this groundwork because a lot of you a lot of you may know a lot of this stuff but we go through it in this episode we build and then we can get into other things when we have a, a solid groundwork laid we kind of get it all down into this video and then we could reference back to it and we can kind of 
it helps us to move forward. So the Watcher account, it goes like this. And when the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. They said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Shemhiyaza, their chief, said to them, I fear that you will not want to do this deed, and I alone shall be guilty of great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath that we may all bind one another with a curse, that none of us turn back from this council until we fulfill and do this deed. Then they all swore together and bound one another with a curse. And they were, all of them, two hundred who descended in the days of Jared onto the peak of Mount Hermon. And they called the mountain Hermon because they swore and bound one another with a curse on it. And these were the names of their chiefs. Shemhiaza, this one was their leader. Artikoth, second to him. Remeshel, third to him. Kokobel, fourth to him. Armumahel, fifth to him. Ramel, sixth to him. Daniel, seventh to him. Zekel, eighth to him. Barakel, ninth to him, Azael, tenth to him, Hermani, eleventh to him, Martyrel, twelfth to him, Ananel, thirteenth to him, Setawel, fourteenth to him, Samshiel, fifteenth to him, Sariel, sixteenth to him, Tumiel, seventeenth to him, Turiel, eighteenth to him, Yamiel, nineteenth to him, Yahadiel, twentieth to him. These are their chiefs of tens. These and all the others with them took for themselves wives among them as they chose. And they began to go into them and defile themselves through them, and teach them sorcery and charms, and to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants. And they conceived from them and bore to them great giants, and the giants begat Nephilim. And to the Nephilim were born Eliod, and they were growing in accordance with their greatness, and they were devouring the labor of all the sons of men, and the men were not able to supply them. And the giants began to kill men and devour them. And they begin to sin against the birds and the beasts and creeping things and the fish, and to devour one another's flesh. And they drank the blood. Then the earth brought accusations against the lawless ones. Azael taught men to make swords of iron and weapons, and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. He showed them metals of the earth and how they should work gold to fashion it suitably and concerning silver, to fashion it for bracelets and ornaments for women. And he showed them concerning antimony and eye paints and all manner of precious stones and dyes. And the sons of men made them for themselves and their daughters, and they transgressed and led astray the holy ones. And there was much godlessness upon the earth, and they made their ways desolate. Shemhiyaza taught spells and the cutting of roots. Hermani taught sorcering and the loosing of spells and magic and skill. Baraquel taught the signs of the lightning flashes. Kokobel taught the signs of the stars. Zekel taught the signs of the shooting stars. Artikov taught the signs of the earth. Shamshiel taught the signs of the sun. Sariel taught the signs of the moon. And they all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and to their children. And as men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. Now the rest of it talks about the four archangels, Michael, Sariel, Raphael, and Gabriel. They see all these terrible events unfolding and they approach God. And this is really cool because this is another time where you get a peek behind the curtain of God and his sons. They, they come to God for solution. They say, do you see all this chaos going on the earth? How long do we let this go? And the souls of humankind are crying out for judgment to the Most High. And this is basically what they say. They say, you know all things before they happen and you see all things and you permit them and you do not tell us what we ought to do to them who regard these things. Now, this is God's response. Then the Most High said, and the Great Holy One spoke, and he sent Sariel to the son of Lamech, saying, Go to Noah, and say to him in my name, Hide yourself, and reveal to him that the end is coming, and the whole earth shall perish, and tell him that a deluge is about to come on the whole earth, and destroy everything on the earth. 
Teach the righteous one what he should do, the son of Lamech, and how he may preserve himself alive and escape forever. For him a plant will be planted, and his seed will endure for all the generations of eternity. Now, Enoch 10-11 through 11 describes how the archangels do as God commanded, they fulfill his decree, and they rounded up the watchers, their, their sinful brothers, and they bound them. And one part of it says, until the day of their, they're, they're bound until the day of their judgment and consummation, until the eternal judgment is consummated. Then they will be led away into the fiery abyss, and to the torture, and to the prison where they shall be confined forever. And at a time of judgment, which I shall judge, they will, they sh they will perish for all generations, destroy all the spirits of the half-breeds and the sons of the watchers, because they have wronged men. Now, that's pretty crazy. That's intense. And after that, we see that Enoch was sent to the watchers to pronounce a judgment on them, because their sexual union with women had corrupted the earth and caused all sorts of havoc. This is where they asked Enoch to intercede to God for them. He went to the water. Enoch went to the waters of Dan, which was southwest of Mount Hermon, and he fell asleep and he saw a dream vision. And in the vision, he was brought back to heaven, and that's where he he met with God. And this is where God told him, "Nope." not hearing them out here's their judgment and this also says god says to him he talks about from the dead bodies of the giants the evil spirits would arise and they would haunt mankind until the final judgment and then enoch was sent back to tell them you will not have peace so that's the watcher account that's what we're talking about basically the birth of these giants were were a mingling of spirits and flesh so angels are supposed to be in heaven they're not supposed to be dwelling on earth and then you have humans which are supposed to be dwelling on earth and then you have this hybrid which it's basically like frankenstein's monster it has no no home no soul it's just it, it, it was created by foul means and it wasn't ordained by god so now they're just this in-between thing who are evil and messed up and this also makes you think of those animal human hybrids and labs and stuff that they're making who have no soul they're the, just these these creations you can either see them as like these sentient things if they have any sentience they, they're basically in torment non-stop then you could also think of them as without the soul of god they may not even have a capacity for kindness or anything like that and it just brings these all these questions and then another thing too with laws if a if a, if a creature is, a, is a, a not a human and not an animal it's an in-between all these laws don't apply to it and you could do all these gross experiments on it and that's a whole other thing that goes into transhumanism so basically these watchers, they're celestial beings whose actions were not only morally evil, but spiritually destructive to all of creation. Now this this whole, everything we've gone over, this is what the, the Jews and the authors of the New Testament fully understood. They fully knew this. Now a lot of people don't even read the book of Enoch now. And, well, they're starting to now, but really this is very important. Now we're going to get into our who's that dude segment this is from the book the last clash of the titans by Derek gilbert and this talks about a certain god being linked to a certain fallen angel that we just learned about named shemiaza so if you remember shemiaza was the angel that initially he was the leader of them and he had them make a pact to go take wives now we're going to see who that dude is and we're going to go to the greeks to find out this is a passage from Derek gilbert's book the last clash of the titans page 81 now let's bring in the Greeks. As we discussed in the previous chapter, over time, old gods were replaced and overthrown by successive generations of younger gods. To the Greeks, these generational roles were filled by the sky god Oranos, the grain god Kronos, and the storm god Zeus. 
Briefly, Oranos caused his wife, Gaia, Mother Earth, great pain by locking away in her belly their eldest children, the giant Kiklopes and Hecatonkeres, also called the Centimanes or Hundred-Hander. Gaia persuaded their other children, the Titans, to rebel. With the help of four of his brothers, the youngest, Kronos, castrated Oranos with an adamantine sickle. But instead of freeing his siblings, Kronos and his bunch drove the Kiklopes and the Hundred-Handers into Tartarus, where they were bound with heavy chains. Kronos then assumed kingship over the Titans and married his sister Rhea. The era of Kronos' rule was called the Golden Age by later Greeks, a time when everyone had enough and there was no need for laws because everyone did the right thing. Oranos, probably looking to stir up trouble to, or to get payback, prophesied that Kronos was destined to be overcome by his son, though strong as he was. Trying to prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled, Kronos proceeded to eat his children as soon as Rhea gave birth, dispatching Demeter, Hestia, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon in that fashion. However, with advice from Gaia, Rhea secretly gave birth to Zeus on the island of Crete, and then presented Kronos with a stone wrapped in swaddling, which he promptly swallowed. Good thing for Zeus that Kronos wasn't a picky eater. Well, Zeus grew to adulthood and managed to force Kronos to disgorge his siblings. Then he freed the Kiklopes and Hundred-Handers, and together with the rest of the Olympians, Zeus overthrew Kronos and the Titans in an epic war called the Titanomachy, which concluded with most of the Titans locked up in Tartarus. There are different accounts of what eventually happened to Kronos. In some accounts, he was banished to Tartarus permanently, while in others, he was released to rule over Elysium, a section of the afterlife reserved for heroes, the demigods, the righteous, and those who were related to the gods. In one account, Virgil's Aeneid, Kronos, known as Saturn, escaped from the abyss to emerge as king and lawgiver at Latium, the part of Italy where Rome was founded. You undoubtedly noticed that Kronos and his bunch were sent to Tartarus, the very place reserved for the angels who sinned in Genesis 6. You might dismiss that as coincidence, or conclude that Peter simply named Tartarus as their place of punishment because it was familiar to readers in a world that had been dominated by Greek thought for nearly 400 years. I think not. Remember, 2 Peter 2.4 is the only verse in the Bible where Tartarus is mentioned. The usual term for the dwelling place of the disobedient dead was Hades. Did Peter know the difference? Yes. He referred to Hades in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2.27 and 2.30. Besides, where did Peter get his theological training? And did he write under the guidance of the Holy Spirit or not? He definitely did. At the risk of putting too fine a point on it, the Mesopotamian Apkalu, the angels who sinned, called the Watchers in 1st Enoch, and the Greek Titans were one and the same. So it is possible that Kronos, the king of the Titans, was known to the ancient Hebrews as Shemhiaza, the leader of the Watchers who descended on the summit of Mount Hermon. Boom! Who's that dude makes a hard comeback? We just linked Kronos of Greek mythology who was locked in Tartarus. He sent others to Tartarus. That guy to Shemiyaza who was also locked in Tartarus for taking human wives. 
Now, we, we discovered that Tartarus was an actual place. Peter knew the difference between Tartarus and Hades. Hades was the original place that these pe people should have gone, but Tartarus was a specific place for these specific offenses. You were sent there for what the Watchers did. This is insane. We just linked Greek myth a Greek mythological god to a Hebrew fallen angel, and in, in, in reality, a Christian fallen angel. So this shows you that all, all the stories and the details about what Kronos did if he ate his baby, who knows if that's true? Probably not. You wouldn't know it's a rock if you ate, you went to go eat Zeus and it was a rock, come on. But those are, remember, those are, are polytheistic embellishments and retellings. They're propaganda of these other gods. But we do, we can, based on the little that's in there, link him to this deity. Now, is this 100% for sure? No, but it's a, it's a very strong case. That's exciting. Back to our segment. Our last and final section goes into the mysterious Mesopotamian Apkalu. This is also almost like an extended who's that dude because the Watchers in Enoch and the Watchers in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 are the same as these Apkalu. The Apkalu are the Mesopotamian retellings of this account. Again, the people at the time knew this. So Abkalu comes from the Sumerian Abgal, and Derek Gilbert gets into the, the etymology of the name, and it basically, the three parts, they add up to big water man, and you'll see why when you see their descriptions, they're, they're described with, you know, a fish hat or coming out of the abyss. These were creatures endowed with extraordinary wisdom, again, just like the Watchers. They were, the original ones were seven in number, and they were the cultural heroes before the flood. So there was a myth called the myth of the 21 poultices, and the seven Apkalu of Eridu, who are also called the seven Apkalu of Apsu. Now, Apsu is also the abyss. So we saw that some angels were taken to the abyss. Now, in their story, they come from the abyss. That links them again. So they were in the service of the god Ea, or Enki. Now, the, the, this, the job of the seven sages, the Apkalu, were to ensure the correct functioning of the plans of heaven. And they basically taught mankind wisdom and craftsmanship and the secrets of civilization. Now, they were originally seen as heroes, but that changed along the way. They get judged by one of the other gods, and you see that they're seen as, as part, partly evil. They also brought medicine. Now, they were, the Apkalu were created, this, this is according to the Mesopotamians, the Apkalu were created by the god Enki to bring knowledge and the gifts of civilization to mankind, similar to the Watchers and similar to the Titan Prometheus. Now, the myth says that there were seven Apkalu before the flood and four afterwards. And again, Apkalu comes from the Sumerian word Ab, which is water, Gal, which is big, and Lu, which means man. So, water big man. They're depicted as in human form with four wings. Some of them have a bird's head. They look like birdmen. Others have that fish hat I talked about. They also sometimes have a pine cone, which some people call a pineal gland. And then they have a watch on their hand, some sort of ancient Rolex. Uh, there's whole stuff on, you know, research on that, and I haven't got into it. So in the Babylonian epic of Era, the god Marduk banishes the Apkalo to the Abzu and punishes them. So the four Apkalu after the flood were only partly divine. Now, this is important. So after the flood, the Mesopotamian Apkalu were only partly divine. Now, they were still referred to as Apkalu. Now, go back to the Watcher account. The Watchers after the Flood are still referred to as the wa the Watchers. So basically the, the beings that are there after the Flood, they're not full divine like the, the original Watchers were. Now I think they even refer to the Giants as, as Watchers in the um, in Enoch. So the last of Kalu's name was Lunana, which was two-thirds of Kalu, which also matches Gilgamesh, who was two-thirds God and, and one-third man. 
Now Gilgamesh was called the Lord of the Upkalu, who brought back the knowledge after the flood. Now that's another that's another theme to all this is the knowledge being preserved from before the flood to after the flood. So God basically wiped out this corruption, and and a lot of them wanted to take the knowledge they had before and transfer it after. So that was a big theme. A lot of these stories. So it said that the the Upkalu preserved the secret pre-flood knowledge, which was prized by the the pagan wizards of Babylon, and to the Jews this knowledge was evil to everyone else this knowledge was great it was amazing it helped them but to the jews they realized that this was not ordained by god gilgamesh is considered a real historical person and in 2003 they had a team that actually found his tomb at the ancient site of uruk which what they believed to be his tomb which is by the euphrates river and then shortly after the iraq war happened a month after they found the site and then they had to they had to cancel digging now i think there's something fishy no pun intended about about that right when they discover the tomb of this this ancient guy this ancient you know nephilim there's a war and then the dig is canceled uh, and tom warren actually has uh, a, a i think one interview where he he thought it was fishy as well so let's move on to the divine knowledge let's, let's highlight that now just like the watchers the apkalu were divine beings that gave special knowledge to humankind the seven apkalu were said to be created in the river which is also a reference to the primeval deep in Mesopotamia. It's located under the earth, so also underworld, another theme throughout all these stories. And it was part of the abyss. So the Apsu, Abz, or Abzu, A-B-Z-U, or A-P-S-U, this is the realm of the dead. Now, this is also in Christianity, there's the abyss, and these other accounts, there's the abyss. Another link. So the Mesopotamian literature shows them as he- pre-flood heroes. And kings and scholars, they would they to trace your lineage back to an Apkalu would mean like, oh, this guy has this guy has some secret knowledge. He he, he could be traced back to the Apkalu. And, and then also like kind of like Egyptians said like, oh, our pharaoh has the, a god inhabit him. They would say like this this god gave me secret knowledge. That's why I should be the ruler. There was a tablet found that actually shows the Apkalu's names and the king that they gave knowledge to. And there's one after the the flood, which was named Nungali Piragal, some weird name, but also Enmerkar, which can be linked back to Nimrod. So now, some somewhere along the line, the the view of these beings kind of shifts, and they get. We're going to our next part. They're the judgment of the Apkalu as evil spirits, and all of this stuff is can be found in Reversing Herman. So this is a snippet of Reversing Herman. Go out and buy that book. This is the guy that we're using for this. This, the Bible, and again, Derek Gilbert's books. We're staying with this theme for a while. This has all the information. I'm telling you like the the 16-page cliff notes of pages and pages and pages of research. So again, post-flood, they were two-thirds Abkalu and one-third human. Gilgamesh was two-thirds God and one-third human. The biblical giants probably were the same. So this also shows that the Abkalu, just like the Watchers, mated with humans. Now, the post-flood Abkalu were perceived to be giants and evil spirits, which directly matches the Enoch account. So the post-flood Abkalu angered the gods with their hubris, with their pride, and their practicing of witchcraft. And these fish-like sages, they were called, were thought to be created in the divine river, the Abzu, along with other demonic creatures. And then you also have a, a Mesopotamian dragon slaying myth where the dragon Labu was killed by the god Tishpak. And then he calls him like the offspring of the river, which is the same place these things are created from, the abyss. Repeating myself, but you get the point. And then you also have the Babylonian story of Marduk, where he says he put the craftsman, which he calls the Apkalu, the craftsman, in the Abzu, and, and he changed the location of the Mesu tree and the El Mesu stone, and did not show anybody. 
And he said, Where are the seven sages of the depths, those sacred fish, who, like Ea their lord, are perfect in sublime wisdom, the ones who cleanse my body? This shows he, he hid the Mesu tree, which where else do we see a tree? Garden of Eden. And the El Mesu stone. Now, do we see stones in Eden? Yes, I believe Ezekiel 38. Pretty sure it's, I'm pretty sure it's Ezekiel 38. The King of Tyre story talks about the precious stone. Every precious stone was his covering. Talks about walking in the fiery stones, the fiery standing stones. Um, God's throne room, his throne is described as having precious stones on it. So this is starting to sound like Eden, a, a retelling of Eden. Again, the imagery is very similar to Ezekiel's, yeah, it's Ezekiel's description of Eden. A cosmic mountain, precious stones, trees, other things like that. So the point is that Marduk banished the Apkalu from his presence. Now tell me, tell me if this sounds familiar. He banished these rebellious divine beings from his presence, his home, the, his council, and it sent them to be punished. Now what does that sound like? That is a ripoff of what Yahweh did with the Watchers. In summary, the parallels to First Enoch's description of how God dealt with the Watchers is right here, exactly how it says the Apkali were dealt with. They were both led to an underworld prison, they both mated with human females, they both brought secret knowledge, they were both regarded as giants, their offspring was. Now, the Book of Giants also depicts some of the giants as birdmen. It talks about this one giant named Mahoe or Makwe, who uses his hands like wings and flies. Now, the reason why that's important is because they, they describe him in terms of a bird. And that's what these Apkalu are depicted as, a lot of them, as a bird man. So we see that all of the elements in Genesis 6, 1-4 through 4, can be found in this Apkalu story and in 1st Enoch. And this is why the Genesis 6, 1-4 through 4 story is even in... Because the, the Mesopotamian story came first. Everybody around that time knew the Mesopotamian story, the, the lies of the Apkalu. And then so they put it in Genesis to say, no, 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 no. This is the true story. Your heroes, your Apkalu, they're nothing more than, than rebellious sons of God. And you think they're heroes? You think they did, did us a favor? They're the cause of all this corruption. So no, that's not the story. This is the story. Boom, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is dropped on them. And that is what we call a polemic. And the actual definition of polemic is an aggressive attack or refutation on the opinions or principles of another. And these are basically, you can think of these as ancient debates where they borrowed from each other, from their own stories, and creatively retold them. But the biblical account was the truth. They, they saw the heroic Apkalu, and they said, no, those are the evil watchers. They, they showed the post-flood Apkalu, they said, no, those are the Nephilim. Why does this matter? Now, as usual, this is our, this is our history. This matters because this is the truth of our kingdom that we're a part of. This also matters because you can see their influence all throughout the world, even to this day. You look at all the comic books, all the movies, they're all about gods, about Norse gods. You have Thor. Um, basically, Superman's name, his real name is Ka-El, and you, El, the Canaanite god El, our god El. It's just, their propaganda is everywhere. It's basically, they, they want to create this picture of being a demigod as being part god, part human, as amazing and beautiful, and guess what? Who else would, would enjoy that telling? The same watchers who did this. Of course they would want to say like, oh, this is great. This is something great that we're doing. And then of course their propaganda would be spread throughout the corrupted world. The world is still corrupted. This is the first part of a series. Um, I hope this was entertaining. I had a great time doing it. 
while I'm doing these, it seems crazy, like all, a ton of things going at once, but then at the end, it kind of comes together, it feels good. So I just want to say, you can comment on stuff that you may want me to go over in the future. I can't promise I'll go over it, but I try to reply to all your comments. Um, and some of you have given me emails of encouragement. I, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all team. I'm excited on this journey. We're going hard. We're in it for the long haul. Um, I put some stuff in the description. You have my email. If you feel led to donate, that's in there too. Any donations definitely helps me get more research material and more time. More time to do these things. Money equals time. So again, if you feel led to do that, do that. But these videos will not be monetized. I don't do not plan to monetize them. This is just you and me and going over the biblical truths. And stay rad.